Angela Merkel and Theresa May are going to have a rap like beef now. They're going to have a beef. They're going to have a beef. Well, Boris, Boris is a he, Boris he's a guy is who now has beefs, the, right? Boris is now the foreign secretary. I know that. Yeah. And the loyal opposition, uh, I can't remember her name, but I've seen a, this person who's going to succeed Corbyn. Apparently, there's some discussion yeah. about who they think they know who that is, and yeah. soon uh, uh, Secretary Clinton will be the president of the United States. It will be. <laughs> This is going to be all women rappers. Well, the show today is going to be about Brexit, right? Are we all missing? Uh, Yeah. Okay. All right. Good, good. And and we are eminently qualified only because Tim is here. But, you know, we have listeners in the UK. We do. Oh, yeah. So, look, I don't know. Anyway, we're going to get to that. My understanding is that in in the UK and in Europe, they love to hear Americans opine. Opine. Yeah, that's what I'm exactly. About what they should do, especially in regards to Brexit. So let me start with something I know about, something on which I have some special expertise. Okay. I understand that at one point Trump was considering, and there was a rumor that he was considering mainly people with one syllable last names Oh, because they're more powerful sounding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a rumor. It's probably false. For vice but, president. You're talking yeah, about. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I like to think it's true. It's kind of awesome. If you, so right. Gingrich and Christie, that's a mark down because those are two syllables. Yeah. That, Hence, I can't, that's a mark up. That's one. And syllable. let's face it. Those are the only reasons not to have Gingrich, Gingrich or, Christie or Christie as vice president. I can't think of any other. Yeah, yeah. there's not any other reason. Yeah. But one of the people he was considering is this uh, military guy who was in the Pentagon. Do you know this guy? General Flynn. Yeah, the lieutenant general, yeah. Yeah. I have to say, just for the comic book villain naming value, <laughs> President Trump and General Flynn <laughs> sounds amazing. It is the most amazing ticket I've ever heard yeah. in my life. Like, so, uh, you know, Carter Mondale, Reagan Bush, Clinton Gore. I Yeah. <laughs> Trump, Trump, Trump and General Flynn. You have to say General Flynn because it's, yeah, it's got that Superman 2 vibe to it. It yeah. does, yeah. Kind yeah. of General Zod thing. Yeah. Mr. Trump and General Flynn could also be a Saturday <laughs> morning cartoon, right? Like, you know, Pinky in the Brain or mm-hmm. – That would uh, be Mr. Trump and Governor Spence. Mm. <laughs> well, that would work, right? Anyway, so this is – I think this is it why people are tuning Secretary in Clinton today. was also – Possible that Marvel already has it, that in production. <laughs> isn't there a, 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 an admiral on, on her short list? There admiral is. Stavridis, the Stavridis. current head of the uh, Tufts uh, – He's the head of the Fletcher School, school. yeah. He's oh, I did Fletcher not know school. that. He's an academic now, yeah. But he was the uh, NATO commander, so – Supreme just, commander. Yeah, supreme allied commander. Now, the other weird thing about yeah. this show is, as you know, Joe, normally we sit down, we talk with a guest, I immediately get to work. We release it the, ne- the same day. Right. And so because it's everything has to be kind of hot off the presses. It's got to oh, be sure, sure. ready. Right. Because it's yeah. got a shelf life. These episodes. Too, Absolutely. Right? Despite our efforts to make them timeless. No, this fish. And here we are talking about sure. talking about very timely things. And it's not going to come out for like a week and a half. Wow. It's going to be not this Friday, but the next Friday, I think. Well, I think the EU crack up is sort of on a seven or eight month Oh, time scale here. So I think this will this will work. But I this mean, Boris delay- Boris is not going to last for a week and a half. <laughs> he, he, right, he may well be out of office by the time <laughs> by the time this is this most recent office. Will yeah. the United Kingdom still be a United Kingdom in a week and a half's time? Yeah, it'll still be. Yeah. I mean, if Wales and England count, then yeah, it still will be. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. There will be a union of at least of, two of potentially separate countries. But isn't, yeah, isn't that yeah. true of every country though? Isn't every country united in the sense that? There's more than one person and theoretically you could have two countries. Yeah. It's one of the really interesting things actually about um, Brexit and this whole uh, um, sort of EU both centralization and decentralization is that you have all these small entities, you know, smaller subnational entities that are clamoring for uh, for greater autonomy. London is actually claiming – I don't know if you guys saw. London is actually claiming that it should have greater autonomy from from the UK yeah. um, in response to Brexit. Um 
basically along the same lines that Scotland should. You know, mm. it's, it's economic um, independence. It's economic welfare depends on it being independent from the Brexit uh, crowd. And it voted for, for Remain. But now it has representation through its former mayor. That's true. <laughs> that's true. I think that's should the way we, democracy Should we works. say, by the way, who the heck you are? Oh yeah, we he's could, he's been a guest before. We could do that. I have been. A guest. I, I, yes, but he doesn't. We need to. But it's him. true. They might not remember my voice. His appearance was deep in the annals, though, of oral yeah. argument history. Yeah. When mm. the if you if you look back once when the scribes began their description of what's happened here. Oh okay. In this studio over low this many years. We're talking about the historians later who. Yeah. The, yeah. Well, I'm talking about the people who rewrite what the historians originally did. So these are the scribes. Oh, Isn't that right? Okay. Yeah, because mm. they're going to be translating. This is right. this is a post Trump. And General Flynn world we're talking about here. We're, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. People are back to burning whale fat and, you know. Uh, <laughs> right. And just dealing gonna... with the fact that most of the time there's no light outside. You think they're going right. to be whales? These are like the Irish monks that save society. <laughs> yeah. Right. They're going to be copying down right. the oral argument. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. They're going to be transcribing Got to transcribe it. something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Might as well be this. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to save the world, you got to start somewhere, right? Yeah. So more small. It, was it episode two that you were on? It, I think it was single digits. It was I definitely days. was single digits, yeah, but I think days. it was. Yeah. I think you were you were our second guest after Sonia West. Yeah. I think. Well, well, we also went back on recently. That's quite an honor. Yeah, we're circling back. Yeah, called circling the drain. Yeah, and <laughs> <laughs> welcomed. On your first on your on your first appearance here, we talked about many things. Uh, the only thing I can really remember for sure is we talked about the fact that you drank about ten cups of coffee a day. We talked. I, that's actually the only thing I really remember uh, very well is, is that we had an extended discussion of my coffee intake habits, um, and they've uh, moderated somewhat, but but not a lot. What, did the show help you? Like I mentioned, clarify was, your thoughts about you it know, did. your habits. It was, it was, yeah, it was sort of like a, a confessional moment, you know, <laughs> where I, I kind of um, was able to discuss my my habit, right? And getting it out in front of everybody, you know, really helped me kind of uh, moderate. Although I will say that that this cup of coffee here is in addition to I think four espressos I've had today. So Whoa. it's yeah. uh, moderation is relative. Well, it's late in the day, so if those were paced appropriately, they were. Then. They were. Yeah, that's really nothing to. Isn't get there all a excited about? Isn't there a rhyme about coffee after espresso or espresso before coffee? There once was a man from espresso. Mm. Yeah, I believe it's liquor before beer, and you're in the clear. Yeah. Oh, is that what? Is yeah. it, that you're in the clear. Is that what it is? Well, this is a family beer show. Beer before so liquor never sicker. Oh, there boy. it is. I'm glad we all remember that. <laughs> I was I was trying to make it funny, but then you know it, it became literal, and now right, oh, yeah. Dear. yeah. <laughs> That's, that's all right. That's all right. The show, the show will get better as it goes along. <laughs> only, it can only improve from here. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we had you back. We've been trying to have you back for a long time. I was worried maybe you'd gotten too big for us. And now that, in fact, is Never. true. That, in fact, is true. But you're back here anyway. Um, probably because we asked you so much, and that's the easiest way to make us go away for the next two and a half years. Uh-huh. Probably. That's my strategy. Um, <laughs> well, we, you're certainly too tall for us. You barely fit in here. Yeah. I think we actually the studio had. studio kind of small. I think, I think we actually had a request from a listener to talk about Brexit. Didn't, wasn't that one of the pieces of feedback that we read? No. To talk about the. Well, okay. I don't so, think so. so no I, one's. I've requested that we okay, talk so about no it. Okay, so no one's. I, I count for nothing. Apparently. So no one's asked for this, but we're going to give it to them anyway. Okay. Now, I'm pretty sure we had something come in on the Twitters or the Facebook or something saying, you know, what do you guys think? Or, anyway, so we're going to. So we got an expert on all things international. Because I just think if anything's going on, it involves something outside of our borders. I'll talk to Tim. I'll talk to Harlan. I'll talk to Diane. I'll talk to somebody who knows something. And you're somebody who knows something. So Brexit. Thumbs up or thumbs down, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> Can I start in a slightly different place? You which may. is um, 
that today I saw, uh, you know how SSRN sends out these emails and it's, mm-hmm. and it's lists of things recently posted and you know, see the little title and they're in different topic areas. And um, the one that uh, came across my email today, uh, one of the papers was, I think the title was something like, is Brexit the end of all transnational law? Ooh. And that seemed a bit. That um, seems a bit grandiose. Well, and a bit hysterical. Um, so I, I probably have... have the title wrong. But do you, I mean, does this, it, is it that, does it have consequences that are that significant? Or is this a pretty small bore event at the end of the day? Or is it a pretty big event? So, yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, it's not going to be the end of international law or transnational law. I feel I feel confident in, <laughs> in saying that. I'm willing to, to – That was my reaction. Like, no. Yeah, I'm willing to stake quite... my credibility with your listeners that, that international <laughs> law is not going to end. Um, I think, you know – You do have a conflict of interest, though, as a professor of international law. So It's true. I just want to – It's true. That, yeah, Although in the United States, a lot of international law professors spend a lot of time explaining why international law doesn't really function. So mm-hmm. in the United States, it would be possible to, to take the alternative view. A really good point. But um, no, I, so I was actually in the UK. I was at Oxford at a conference <clears throat> about three days after the vote. And uh, everybody in Oxford, I think, voted something like 70 yeah. percent, not surprisingly. To, yeah, it was overwhelming. For, for yeah, as did Cambridge. Right. Um, but, uh, everybody there was, was concocting all kinds of, um, scenarios under which, you know, Brexit was never going to happen. Um, and how the Scots would veto it, the Scots are going to veto it, or what they'll do is they'll, they'll use it now as an opportunity to renegotiate. And then they'll have a second referendum on the, on the renegotiation. They'll never actually trigger this article. They'll never actually trigger article. We'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think in all of those scenarios, this turns out to be a big nothing. Um, It'll have consequences. An expensive nothing. An expensive it, nothing for the for given the, the huge hit to the pound sterling. And, yes, yeah. um, uh, not so expensive for me because I was able to shop actually while I was there <laughs> right. uh, at a at a discount. But um, expensive for them, um, and and will have consequences obviously for EU politics. But I think in terms of kind of big systemic changes to the international system, not much will happen if the British don't end up actually going through with it. Um, I think if they do end up going through with it. Obviously, then you are talking about a seismic uh, event. And, and part of the reason that you're talking about such a big event is um, not only does it potentially empower other um, secessionist movements, um, both countries um, within the EU that might want to think about leaving the EU, um, but it also is going to have – if Britain itself splinters, mm. that has consequences not just for the EU but also potentially consequences for institutions like the UN, right? I mean so mm. the UK has a um, a permanent seat on the Security Council. Right. It's not clear that England would have a – should have a permanent seat on the Security Council if, right. if Ireland you know, reunifies and Scotland mm. – um, Do you think leaves. it does anything to fuel subnational like the Pays Basque or – um, uh, other sorts of groups within existing uh, nation states does it empower does it empower their claims i think it does um in a couple of ways i mean so so one of the things is is of course this was true a couple of years ago um when the scottish had their referendum that the the spanish government is, was quite keen to not have the scottish vote for independence mm. um because of their for this own reason yeah, yeah exactly for, for, you know for, for just this reason um, if Scotland were to try to pull out of the e, uh, out of the UK and, and remain within the EU, you know the Spanish have said that they would potentially try to block Scotland from um, acceding to the EU precisely because they don't want to send a message to these um, regional groups that you ah. can secede from the country but still remain within the um, remain within the EU. Um, you know, so that's one sense in which there's definitely a lesson here. Although what the lesson is kind of depends on um, on uh, on what happens. 
You know, but the other thing, and I think we were talking about this before you turned the microphone on, is just that um, you, what, what we're seeing across a variety of different, um, you know, not just in the EU, but but you are definitely seeing in the EU, is that um, subnational governments are becoming increasingly influential. So you're seeing this both centralization of authority um, at the supranational level, at the EU level, but also kind of a devolution of authority down away from the national government, down towards um, you know, regional governments or, or city governments. And so, you know, in the UK, you know, Scotland and, and Wales obviously extracted um, greater home rule um, from from the uh, Cameron government several years ago. And London is now talking about wanting um, additional uh, independence from, um, from the UK um, if Brexit goes through so that they are able to maintain their position as a um, uh, financial center. You know, essentially what they want to try to do is isolate themselves from the economic hit that that the rest of, of England will take. So my, my memory of Europe mm-hmm. as a, as a union, as a, as a government yes. only goes back to like the nineties, right? Right. Uh, you know, the Berlin wall falls and, and Europe as a force emerges. This is now partly because that's when I get to be an adult. And before that I was a dumb dumb and I didn't know anything. It's also because it didn't actually become the European union until the nineties, until the nineties. Yeah. But there was, but there was a, um, was a common market. There was a common market. Yeah. 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 And and so there was a vote in the seventies, right, by England, mm-hmm. uh, by the UK to join Europe in some fashion. Now, in what sense? And but when did? Um, and now we know that to get out of the European Union, they have to trigger this thing, Article Fifty, which is in the basic the the big treaty, right. the big constitution that forms Europe. Did they get into that arrangement that requires them to trigger? Article 50 in the 70s or in the 90s? Do you want to take us back to what happened in the 70s and then what happened in yeah, the 90s? Yeah, so, so the UK is not one of the founding members of the, uh, of the common market mm-hmm. um, system. So that was just the um, continental uh, countries. Um, and they actually tried to get – they started trying to get in in the 60s. Um, and because the existing members have they to meaning the UK members, tried to get into yes, the common sorry. market in the sixties. Yeah, the UK tried to join the the common market in the in the sixties, and they applied. I think they applied twice in the sixties for membership, and their membership application was rejected. Hmm. Wait, is it? Uh, is this a matter of not filling out the form right? Was it uh, their, their SATs weren't high? Enough? Is that right? <laughs> uh, uh, no, uh, what it was was that um, existing members had to approve the application, and Charles de Gaulle was the president of France, mm. mm-hmm. and he felt that the British were not European enough. Um, and so uh, he essentially rejected their application. And so after he left office, they applied again in the, um, in the early 70s and they were admitted to the, to the common market. And at the time, um, it, they didn't have all of the political institutions that are that, – that the EU now has. Um, and they did take a referendum. I, I took a referendum sometime in the mid-70s and it passed overwhelmingly in favor of joining the now, That was one question market. I want to ask. I yeah. mean, so is the – the original – this idea of a referendum, of course, in the UK, parliament is sovereign or at mm-hmm. least the queen in parliament formally is sovereign and, and but parliament has the, right. the final say. And so the referendum is a true referendum and true in the sense a non-binding referendum other than politically, right? But – and so it's an up or down thing. Was it – but you say it passed overwhelmingly. Did it pass by a kind of two-thirds or a, more of a supermajority majority? I think it got margin? two-thirds. I think, I think it was about a 65, 35 or 67 – you know, two thirds, one third. Something that would be consistent split. with a level of support that you would normally look for in in large constitutional change. I think that's what right. I'm getting at, right? But um, yeah. and then so, so and there were also Eurosceptics though from the beginning, of right? Of course, I mean, there were. Thatcher was. Uh, my recollection is she was quite opposed to all of this, and 
Was she not a Eurosceptic or was she a – although I misremembering that? Yeah, although later, um, you know, it was actually the Labor Party when Thatcher was in government. It was the Labor Party that in the early 80s ran on a, um, a platform of actually pulling out of the oh. common market. And then they lost and, uh, and then later reversed that position. But you're right. You know, there's been a, there's been a strong strain of Euroscepticism in, in um, Britain just as in the United States there's a strong strain and always has been a strong strain of skepticism of the federal government um, which which in the United States as many of our listeners know forms strange political alliances because you have yeah. your kind of anti-nafta anti-globalization type crowd but you also have your strong sovereignty crowd and they can be on the same side of an issue even though they are diametrically opposed in terms of you know, the uh, policies of national government, right? I assume it's the same kind of thing over there, right? You have your protectionist crowd on kind of labor and uh, labor grounds and, yeah. and income and uh, wealth grounds, but then you also have your sovereigntists, right? Yeah, no, that's that's right. And, you know, if you look at the, um, and to a large extent, the impetus for the, the political impetus for the referendum came from, I think, some backbenchers in the conservative party um, and the Euroskeptics. But a lot of the vote actually came from um, working class Voters, many of whom I think are sort of historically are core labor voters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've, you've actually seen, I, I think you guys have probably both seen this, but you've had you know, some of these um, towns uh, all of a sudden realizing that they were going to lose. They were getting huge EU subsidies yeah. um, and all of a sudden realizing they're about to lose these subsidies and requesting the British government to confirm that they're going to be able to retain their subsidies after they voted to essentially After they them. voted to leave by overwhelming margins. By overwhelming margins. <laughs> right. um, yeah. I mean, this is a what's the it, matter with Kansas problem in the, face in, right, of in the plenty UK. of information about the fact that they were getting EU subsidies. I mean, it's not like the Remain crowd hid yeah. or, or failed to explain, well, you know, actually, we get a ton of money back and here's where it goes. And so this was what was really interesting about being in the UK um, right afterwards was that on the one hand, you had some real parallels between what we sometimes see in the States, which is just the idea that um, – you can say anything you want and that the the opinions of experts are not any better than the opinions of people who are just making judgments based on their gut. This is uh, the Colbert theory of politicking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so um, you, you know, you, you saw that and you definitely saw um, – I think it was Michael, uh, the, the Justice Secretary, Michael Gubb, who actually said at one point, you know, we don't need any more expert – you know, opinions. Yeah, we've had enough of experts. We've yeah. had enough of experts, and this and this seems to actually resonate um, resonate with people. But you know, another thing that um, uh, one of the Oxford um, uh, professors do, do we call them Dons? Are they called Dons? <laughs> I, I, I think we look. There's. I'm. I'm just imagining. Even though you're an expert, that yeah. we, there is so much that we're going to get wrong about UK politics and right. other things. I'm just assuming right. that our listeners from the UK, Northern Ireland. Even Ireland itself and Europe, they're all going to write in and, and tell us. So that's – you say whatever you want. I, I figure that's a blank check to say whatever we want. I think they're called doilies. I think, doilies. Right. I think they're, that's, <laughs> yeah, right. they're that's right. That's right. Yeah. UK doilies. That's right. Yeah. Um, Oxford doilies. <laughs> the, Oxford, the Oxford doily. Now he, so he was telling me that part of um, sort of the culture of British elections is that they have this first-past-the-post parliamentary system, right? So they don't ever have a national election um, for prime minister, right? They have parliamentary elections where they vote for their MP. Um, and, you know, just as we have with congressional districts, you, you have um, parliamentary districts in which uh, because it's a first-past-the-post system, you know, once the, the once you get 50 percent or once you get a majority of the vote, every other vote is really just sort of an expression of support for or against something. And so his theory was that uh, a lot of what went no, on can here – Can you go back just a second? I just yeah. want to clarify that. You mean first-past-the-post in the sense of uh, the um, votes by um, 
people in those districts and, and then you elect like the one MP based on a first-past-the-post system rather than proportional? Or do you mean the votes for prime minister of people in parliament forming a government or both? The first. I mean, yeah. I mean it's not a proportional system. Exactly, so you don't right. have a national election where you allocate seats in parliament based on the proportion right. of the vote. What you do instead is you have – just as we have with Congress, you have a district voting. You're just voting for your MP. It's like, it's like if the House of Representatives right. voted for the president. Uh, and they know if if the you know if the if it's a majority of these MPs wind up being in Party A, Party A's leader will be the leader of the parliament because everyone in parliament will vote for right. them for party for, to, for leader. Right. Right. So you're just aggregating over the course of all the members. But it also means that if you're, for example, if you're in a um, a district where you know the 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 Tory representative is going to win. And you're sure, just as if it, you live in California and you know that the Democrat is going to win um, you know, the vote, it doesn't really matter who you vote for. So you can vote to express your feelings about a whole range of issues. So um, this professor's theory was essentially that that's what happened um, to a large number of people in this vote is that they didn't understand that this was actually a national vote where um, everything – there was just going to be a total yes or no. Mm-hmm. And so because they were accustomed to the idea mm-hmm. that um, – you could simply show up at the ballot box and if you didn't like something unrelated that, that labor was doing or the conservative government was doing, you voted based on that, that particular preference and not based on what you actually wanted the outcome um, to be. So you had a lot of a, a big protest vote from people that didn't understand the way a national election um, would work because they didn't have a lot of experience with it. That seems – I'm just I, – I, I mean it is consistent with all of the – with the yeah. anecdotal stories of regret the day after but it, let's let's can we go back again to yes. the 70s let's, let's <laughs> right. hold on let's can go I back say to the one more thing about, no it, it can also be consistent mm-hmm. with if if the participation rate was much higher than the typical parliamentary election right and right. The, i think this participation rate was something like 72 percent or yeah, 73 percent yeah. and so if that's a very big change over the typical parliamentary vote you might have people who simply don't vote very often Right, and that makes it a little more plausible, although only a little more, I think, yeah. uh, that that they might actually be thinking of the mechanics in a way that's inaccurate about how how a vote might be nationally aggregated. They might be thinking, oh, it's just you know, it's just like in our district, like everything else. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the easiest explanation is that people wanted to express their preferences. You know, they wanted to express their sense of UK sovereignty, but they never expected you know, leave to win. And so you, I, but I don't know, you know, so it's yeah, kind of like, been Boris Johnson's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, so, all right. So um, when, when the, when that original referendum was held, uh, the, there was already a set of treaties, which formed a, an economic community. Is that right? There, it, yes. There, so there was a, there was a common market at the time, but the, it didn't have all of the um, political institutions right. that have, that have subsequently been created. Um, so most of those come about in the um, – starting in, with the Treaty of Maastricht in the 90s, which I think was 1993, which um, actually transforms the European community into the European, um, into the European Union. Um, and then there's a series of treaties after that that establish what you referred to earlier as the constitutional arrangement. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you go and like download these treaties on the internet, they're massive and they're, they're often what are referred to as amending treaties. So you have a treaty, so for example, the Treaty of Lisbon is what introduced Article 50 that you referenced yeah. earlier. But it actually inserts Article 50 into a treaty called the Treaty on European Union. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a very sort of confusing set of arrangements. It's not like the US where there's a single um, document that is relatively short that sets out the constitution. So it's more system. like the US code where 
you get a series of of enactments, which then some of which are are put into different sections. More and, like the statutes at large. I mean, it's yeah. where you're just serially doing like they don't go back and re. Well, one of them. The said, U.S. Yeah. Code is sort of codified in a way that took stuff and re- reorganized it and, and tried to give it some coherence. This so, sounds more like you're just adding. What's the most recent one? Is it Rome? Is the is the Rome Treaty? Which one is that yes. in the sequence? Um, I think it's it's not. I don't think it's as as coherent as the U.S. Code. Well, we no. start, but the point is, we start the if the general story is this general story correct? We start with an economic arrangement, kind of a NAFTA free trade thing for obvious in order to take advantage of obviously available gains of trade, and over time, and especially after the fall of the Berlin Wall, with a lot of enthusiasm for Europe and overcoming historic wars, and you know, there's a there's an appetite for increased political consolidation. Which may also be driven, and I don't know, you can get into this, by some concerns over being able to integrate fully economically without political, shared political institutions. But that all happens in the 90s. And so what, first of all, is that kind of correct, that story of, you know, the the, um, way that we move to political consolidation in whatever form we have? Um, How does this parallel the U.S. experience of the Articles of Confederation meant to solve a basically economic arrangement problem with as little political integration as possible? And then the utter failure of that within a fairly short order, and then the United States Constitution, which creates a strong, a stronger federal government. Although I think people forget that only lasted for a hundred years until the Civil War, and it's only then that you get a very strong federal government, which is able kind of politically to integrate in a serious way. How does this parallel, if yeah, at all? So I, um, I think it's a very close parallel, um, and I, a close parallel at a level of abstraction. You know, yeah, the, the actual—it's the only level I operate. Right. At. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the actual <laughs> issues are obviously are obviously a little bit different, but I think that's right. You know, there's an imperative to have um, a common market, um, to have free flow of goods for all of the gains of trade reasons, and then once you have that, um, you start getting pressure to. Um, to harmonize a whole bunch of other things. Um, so in Europe, a lot of that has been about free movement of people, right? And this is mm-hmm. one of the big issues, um, big issues with Brexit. Um, there's also in the modern world, this would not have been true in the, necessarily in the um, 18th century in the United States, but there's a lot of pressure to harmonize regulations. So a lot of trade liberalization now is, is really about um, trying to harmonize regulations for products and, and services. And is that because they can be substitutes for for tariff barriers that have dropped? Exactly. So once right. you lower the tariffs, people think, "Oh, I'll keep them out with this and that and that." And so you've got to do to the non. Well, that's one. I was wondering how much, and, and another is just an honest, you know, um, um, wish for greater political integration for other kinds of reasons. But another one is um, to, to preserve the economic benefits of gains of trade. That, you know that you. And I don't think it's quite the same as what you said, Joe, but it's like, you know, you, you, you have a free trade zone, but then one country says, you know, we, we don't have a problem paying our workers 10 cents an hour or using our lakes as storage for toxic waste. This is just, you know, one man's this is another man's that. And we, we prefer this. And, and, and that's not going to work over time, right? Because people are worried you're going to, you know, they'll be able to outproduce for a time. And, and well, that's, the, that's the country that wants a, that sounds like they want a lower regulatory environment. What I'm thinking of is a lower regulatory versus one that wants a higher one, right? It's the higher one that would be doing it as a trade barrier. The country right. that says dump anything you want in our lake is not the one who's using it as a trade barrier, are they? Yeah, no, you, so you have two different concerns. So the Christian's concern is the concern I think we more often hear in the United States, which is that you're going to have you know jobs and industry moving to places that have lower regulation 
Um, and it's been well. I mean, it's the race to the bottom, to the bottom stuff bottom. that Ricky Rivez criticized, yeah, and right. you know, there's a lot been written about it. But right, but in the but I think you're right. Once you and so that concern is really a concern about the creation of a of a trade exactly. regime. Yeah. The concern, Joe, you're talking about is is more of a concern that comes once you have a trade regime, um, because once you have a trade regime, exactly as you said, right? The concern is that we can substitute a tariff is fairly clearly a barrier to trade. Um, but we can substitute a regulation um, for a tariff most of the time and achieve pretty much the same purpose, but it's disguised because it's in service of some um, non-economic objective. So environmental um, concerns, you know, you're you're stopping the lakes from being polluted or, or you know, what have you, um, safety, health. Um, and so trade regimes have to have some mechanism to kind of sort out what's an acceptable um, regulation and what's not um, an acceptable regulation. So you do have both of these concerns, I think, um, going on. And, and you know, again, obviously with, with Brexit, one of the concerns – I don't know that this was a concern that necessarily motivated um, a lot of the voters for Brexit, but it certainly was an intellectual concern behind the Brexit movement was the idea that the British like free movement of goods. They don't necessarily like having to accept EU um, regulations on a whole bunch of um, – a whole bunch of uh, – issues as a condition of access to the common market. But they did. They chose to do that. And I, I don't know exactly when, because all these, do they have to approve each of these treaties as they add mm-hmm. it to the body of whatever the European Union, is the European Union a sum of a bunch of different treaties? It is the sum of a bunch of different treaties. And they, so if you, if you were to Google it, you'd see right now there are essentially two treaties that are sort of the equivalent of the U.S. code, if we were using that example, is the Treaty on European Union. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, the TFEU. Um, but those treaties are themselves again this kind of product of the Treaty of Maastricht, the Treaty of Lisbon, right, and so forth. Yeah. And and what so what creates the eurozone and the euro, um, at, which the you know which UK the UK did not join. Yeah. Now, so yeah. not everybody joined the the euro. So so if you think about going from the common market to greater political union, then of course the most recent thing they did was they moved to um, a monetary right union where they introduced um, they introduced the euro. And uh, we may have talked a little bit about this the last time I was on. Of course, the euro created all kinds of um, problems once the economic crisis hit. Um, and, the, and then the before the Brexit, of course, we had Grexit, the possibility of Grexit. Right. right. Um, and uh, that was to a large extent driven by the fact that being in the euro system actually created this problem for um, not just Greece, but a lot of the southern European economies that formerly what they would do is they devalue their currency as a way to deal with um, some of these economic pressures. And they weren't able to do that. Um, and so, you know, part of what seems to have happened with with Britain is that Britain rejected the euro um, project. And that looks like a good call, you know, a, a year or two ago. And so, you know, I, I've sort of wondered to the extent to which that played into the thinking here that, you know, look, we we, we rejected the last major push for European um, unity. And that turns out to have been the right call. And I think it did turn out you know, probably to have been the right call for them. Well, in the short term. It, right. I mean, that's what I want to – like, is the, Euro, is the problem with the euro, right, that um, you either have very tight political integration and a single currency. Yeah. Right. Or you have – more like NAFTA and very little, very little political integration and, and, and separate different, cur- and different, and different currencies. currencies. Right. And, and, and not just politi- yeah, I mean, the, straddle that. Right. And, and here and, I'm thinking of central banking and uh, right. And more than just political union, you're talking specifically, I think about fiscal union. Right. If, you're, if you have monetary union. Yeah. And, which and, they don't have, which they don't have. Right. No. Yeah. The and, EU doesn't have. Yeah. But uh, they might be better off. Might they not? If, if now that, um, if the problem is misalignment, of fiscal and monetary matters. Right. Uh, to have a member who played a very significant role in terms of world 
sort of money supply, right? Um, to get the hell out, right? You're, <laughs> it's to be in the room for the political discussion, but to be out of the room in the monetary union, well, now they're out of the room, period. So might the EU not be better off for, with the UK gone, right? I mean, doesn't that make the euro stronger? Well, I What don't, do you think of that? I don't know that it makes... I, it, it depends well, Tim, on if they can have, keep the thing Tim from disintegrating, expert, right? If they keep it from disintegrating further um, by being sufficiently punitive to the... A British to keep everyone else in line, then ha- won't the euro ultimately be stronger? It would seem to me like there are fewer impediments to ever closer union. The phrase that I take it is the magic phrase in Europe in the treaties involved. Um, then, yeah, they there they are fewer seem like there are fewer own. barriers to tighter integration now that could solve that problem. But dramatically, you, but, but you're fewer barriers. more tightly you're more tightly integrating with weaker economies because the UK is a very strong economy. Yeah, but right? so are France and Germany. It, True, but you take the UK out of it and it doesn't look as good, right? Tim, adjudicate. Yeah, so, you know, to some some extent, this is like, uh, you know, like casting runes, right? So there's there's a ton of different possibilities. Because I just killed a chicken. Exactly, right. You could kill a chicken. We could flip over tarot cards. I mean, um, (laughs) so I think you're right. Conceivably, they've solved a massive political problem. And by solve, I mean and by that you in mean the, the Europeans, the Europeans, and I mean if Brexit actually happens, right. you know, in several years, right? Britain's not leaving anytime soon, so uh, we're talking about actually way down the road. Yeah. Um, they will have solved a potential political problem uh, by actually removing Britain. I think I think you're right, and some people have said this that you know ultimately this could be a positive story about the removal of a reluctant member um, of the um, of the union and this is a common problem that we see in lots of international institutions is that to, you know international institutions um, tend to work by consensus um, the EU actually has rules to do some things by um, with less than consensus but major constitutional um, small C constitutional changes require consensus and um, so you're you're basically can move at the pace of your most reluctant member um, and so I think that's right. You know, the, the ability to mo- remove Britain c- conceivably, if it doesn't result in the breakup of the EU, um, could ultimately make, you know, in the long run, make the EU stronger. It also strengthens Germany's hand um, mm. quite a bit, I think, within EU politics because – and this, again, we could go back centuries. That but, always but, ends well. <laughs> but what, yeah. I mean Brit- Britain's, you know, role is often to sort of offset the politics of the, of right. the continent and so – Strain the Hun. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so if they're out, the, you know, then, then there's less restraint on, uh, you know, on, on Berlin. Um, mm. so, um, so, so I think, I think all of that is, all that is right now economically. Um, uh, I think obviously Christian, you're right. The, the, to the extent that, that you get trade barriers, um, between the UK and Europe economically, that's, that's very costly. I think some of the, um, but won't they just revert to the WTO baselines that, yeah, assuming they don't come up with some alternative arrangement. Exactly. So here's where, and, and so maybe it's useful here to just describe what article the Article Fifty process yeah, here. So, so you know, this is again kind of more rune casting. But um, the Article Fifty process is that um, Britain uh, at some point will provide, if it goes through with this, will provide a notice to the EU that it intends to withdraw from the European Union. And once it delivers that notice, that triggers a two-year period um, in which Britain exits from the EU um, at any point within the two years by mutual agreement. And if no mutual agreement is reached um, at the end of the two-year period, Britain is out. And so if no mutual agreement is reached at the end of that two-year period, from a trade perspective, Joe, you're right. What they would do is they'd revert to um, WTO um, status, which would mean they would get um, most favored nation 
um, relations. Now, most favored nation relations is going to result in, terrier, uh, in tariffs being imposed mm-hmm. on a range of products. So, why, why would they revert to that? Do they have so because basically the the EU treaties would be gone, right? So, do they have other treaties with these nations that predate that, and they would fall back to those treaties? Well, they're all WTO members, so they're just so that's it. Yeah. So the the, yeah. the fallback position is WTO because the free trade arrangement that they have in place is the EU. Because which is, the UK has entered the WTO separately than the rest of Europe. Yes. All, well, all, so all WTO members are individually – excuse me. All EU members are individually members, are individually of, the, members of, the, of the WTO. Of and the then the WTO. EU itself is also. OK. Um, also uh, party. So the um, – it's the EU that actually decides to bring a dispute within the within the WTO. But you can, if you if the United States was filing a claim and, and what it was challenging was, for example, a um, you know a Greek measure or a Spanish measure, you could name Greece or Spain. Right. Um, you would also name the EU um, because there's a centralization within the EU. But but each EU member is individually party to the WTO agreements. Yeah. So why is there? I I, I get the two year period. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess I get why it's there, but if it, you know, it's either they're going to sign an agreement or not. They might sign an agreement after three years. But the point is that during those two years, they're still a member of the EU. That's right. right. And they're uh, still a member until they haven't triggered it yet. So. But there's no, but there's nothing in that provision that, that requires each side to negotiate in good faith. Even there's nothing that dictates what will happen. It just says, you know, there's a two year waiting period. Yeah. So um, withdrawal provisions are really, really common in treaties. Hmm. Um, and uh, so well, this is a big difference with you were analogizing before to the U.S. Constitution and our history. And this is an interesting and dramatic difference that we I mean, we fought one reason we fought a war was because we don't have Article 50 in the Constitution. Right. There is no exit clause. Yeah, and, and, and the, and the yeah. president at the time was quite emphatic. That there was no way to leave the union. And so, part of that is that a loose integration. uh you know, to the extent that what you're worried about it are members of that integration using different threats as weapons against one another, taking the threat of withdrawal off the table dramatically reduces, you know, what one can threaten the other with, right? And and therefore maybe solve some kind of tragedies of the commons that might otherwise develop in an integration. And here it's on the table, right? They They put into the EU a secession. And, t- and Tim, you're saying it's on lots of tables, right? It's a common function in these agreements. To have- in, in international agreements, yeah. Yeah, yeah which is fascinating. Exactly, yeah. So um, uh, Larry Helfer at Duke kind of wrote um, about 10 years ago, wrote the seminal article on exit from treaties. And his basic point was that actually nobody's really thought about this. But, you know, you sh- when he, he did, he basically went and counted both the um, prevalence of these kinds of um, provisions and also how often they're used. Mm. And it turns out that in run-of-the-mill treaties, not things as important as European Union, they're activated relatively frequently. Mm. Um, and it turns out you can, with- you can withdraw from the WTO. I think if, if memory serves, um, the WTO agreements have a one-year withdrawal um, provision, um, and that's pretty standard. Six months to one year is, is pretty standard. The EU has a two-year period because it does contemplate um, trying to negotiate a, a successor arrangement, mm-hmm. um, but but there's nothing particularly uncommon about that about this. What is uncommon about it, and I should also say, since the recession, there's been a wave of um, denunciations or withdrawals from economic treaties, mostly by um, developing countries. Um, so particularly in Latin America, um, a lot of um, especially investment treaties. Have been um, with, with denounced, what we say, denounced or withdrawn um, 
from by um, a number of of Latin American countries, Ecuador, Venezuela, um, Bolivia. Um, And so, you know, what's sort of interesting about this is that obviously the issues, again, are different and much more complicated in Europe. But but the um, there was an anti-globalization and anti sort of the international law of globalization movement that really gained impetus in the developing world. um, And again, particularly in Latin America. Um, right around the time the recession really got going, what, eight years ago, seven or eight years ago now. Um, and it's now, we now see it moving to the EU and the United States. Mm. Um, normally, I think people think that, you know, these withdrawal clauses exist in treaties like the, the Treaty on European Union or the WTO agreements. But the, the economic costs, Christian, this is what you were saying, the economic cost of actually using them is so massive that although they legally exist, they are politically not viable. And it turns out once you introduce um, democracy into the equation, (laughs) what is not economically viable does in fact become politically viable. Right. Right. Suggesting that people are not voting on economics alone. Uh, Yes. Well, in this case – Whatever else they might be voting on, it's difficult to say what it might be and it might differ for lots of different people. But it can't be – Back to the point about experts, right? It can't just be that a uh, you know sort of blue ribbon panel of Nobel laureates um, or or economic prize winners have said, well, this is what makes the most sense. Well, because right? yeah. then we wouldn't need a vote. Right. Or the president a, of the United States, who I believe went over there and said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Part of this is a story about the danger of putting things up for an up or down vote with the fifty percent threshold, right? If you just put up any particular issue in the United States, depending on the time that you put it up, you know, it's kind of like sending stuff to a jury. <laughs> you know, you never quite know what's going to happen. In fact, when you do studies of what happens in the jury room, it's oftentimes a little bit disappointing. And the same thing with these referenda. I mean, we're seeing this a little bit with the election in the United States now. And in juries, what's the rule? Like, is there a unanimity rule? How many people did there need to be? That These sort of uh, complications that we embroider onto these right. requirements can be de- aimed at just this thing. Right? Yeah, it's you, like when liberals write about the need for a new constitutional convention to do things. There's always a, a hidden not maybe not so hidden downside of having a new constitutional convention you don't know what's going to happen yeah like people would be involved <laughs> well right i mean it's you're giving you know it's an enormous power that you've suddenly yeah. made real as an option and and in britain so i i get the you know technically it's a referendum and the power is in parliament and because it's a referendum it's like 50 percent is enough to do something but that seems like an awfully low threshold for a major what yeah. is now it's and i guess you know technically it's just a treaty but really, it is a constitutional change. And, and of course, yeah. that's part of what the debate is about, right? No, it's not – this is just a treaty that we're in and our constitution, our sovereignty, it's all bound you – know, there's no written constitution in, in the UK. But like our sovereignty is our sovereignty and this doesn't affect that. This is just a vote about what we should do with some treaty. I can have that perspective. But I think any rational perspective is this is a huge constitutional change in the meaning and the economy of, of the UK. It's crazy that it's a 50 percent threshold, right? Yeah, well, so I think what you said is exactly right. Um, and this goes back to the other point about having experience with these kinds of national elections. Because it's just technically a non-binding referendum, there is – there doesn't need necessarily to be a lot of thought that goes into um, what the decision rule should be, right? So do you need – you know, in the United States, obviously, we have supermajority rules that are very carefully thought out that are designed to prevent major constitutional changes unless there is a really significant um, – a really significant uh, majority in favor, right? right? So, you know, you need to have ratification by the, by was it three quarters of the states and two thirds, first it has to pass two thirds right. of each house of Congress. It might be too hard to change in fact. Some right. people have argued that. Right. And, and in other, and, and so people have pointed out in the wake of the Brexit vote that even where you have direct democracy, it's not uncommon necessarily to have um, 
two votes that are required basically. So you get a kind of cooling off period. I think part of the problem was that the government thought it was going to win this vote. Mm -hmm. um, And so they didn't really think about these issues and then they didn't set expectations. And because it's not legally binding, there was no legal rule to fall back on. So it was all going to be about, you know, what kind of expectations they set for what the effect of this was going to be. So everybody understands it to be politically binding, even though it has no legal legal effect. I mean, there's a sense in which greater legalization of this process um, would have probably worked to their to their benefit because they could have established um, baselines. You know, one of the interesting things I was thinking is that the vote passed by about um, 52 to 48. Um, and everybody keeps talking about um, how small a margin that is, you know. But if a in the U.S. presidential election, if the president wins, you know, fifty two forty eight, we actually tend to think that that is a, a pretty convincing win, pretty convincing yeah. win, yeah. right? And, yeah. and 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 so you know, a lot just depends on framing here um, yeah. and and how you think about it. And now, Article fifty yeah. doesn't delve into any of this. Does doesn't t- address the question how should the member state reach the decision about whether to withdraw? It simply says if you want to withdraw. You want to trigger it? Here's right, you, you just need deliver to say. a. It's easy. You just deliver a notice. Right. Says we're but, but for it to be law, well, so put it. Maybe it's put it this way. How, how do you lawfully trigger it? Right. We, yeah. we lawfully from the perspective of the Domestic of the country, because right. some person in England could send. I mean, God knows there are throngs of these do. people who right. want to leave. Right. And right. They, so they could be sending letters to Brussels every day. <laughs> right. Why aren't? Why haven't they triggered Article Fifty already? Well, right. it's because. According to Section 1 of Article 50, you need to look to the constitutional law of the member state. I actually think that um, although that's possible, it's probably the case that nobody's done that and we should suggest that somebody do that. <laughs> that's such a, you mean that's just, such a John Oliver move. Right. You mean just some rando? <laughs> just a rando sending in? Somebody, yeah, somebody from like Birmingham should just right. send in an Article 50 notification to Brussels. <laughs> <laughs> you could do this. Yeah. This strikes me as Peaky in the same blinders. genre as um, as as law profs who are teaching FOIA as a class project, getting students to do a bunch of FOIAs, <laughs> right? And maybe with a the proviso they can't FOIA their own university, else maybe they'll get fired for cause. I don't know, but um, <laughs> it's it's one of those projects which creates a lot of work for other people. Right. At, at Georgia, actually, I think there's a project. I don't know which department it's in. Which is to interview professors. Nice. Hmm. And so they send out. I think it's Grady. The they send out of hordes of of students to interview professors about like how they became a professor and their you know they do these. Sounds like a colossal waste of time. Well, I, look, I like I'm not one. I I actually did one. I thought it, the, the student. I don't yeah. know. It was good. The student did a good job. Well, what's I think. the point of it? I think it's to learn, learn how to, to interview, interview people and yeah. Oh, so it's like a teaching moment for them. Yes. It's not the point. Is not to waste your time. Oh no! No, okay. the conscious object of the assignment is not to is not to diminish okay. the resources of the rest of the university. How quickly we've arrived at mixed right. motives again? Yes. <laughs> we were yeah. talking about this upstairs. All right, now at this point, we well, gotta, now we're, back. we're not hitting record before we hit record. We There's, haven't hit record yet, right? No, I, I should say that you hit record. record the moment we sat down. Yeah, no, I did not. I, <laughs> no, no, no. Of course not. I would never do that. No, I'm, not, totally I'm not the Alan Funt of, uh, <laughs> of oral argument over here. So our listeners may have detected a, a difference in, in timbre and in tone and, and also the sound effect that I dropped in. Mm. Probably some kind of warping sound effect. I'm not sure. Okay. By the time they hear me saying this, they'll know what the sound effect was. All right. So we had a, we had a technical difficulty. Good. We had a glitch. A glitch. This a has never, never happened before. Has it, Joe? This ever happened? No, the glitch of last week that was new. Yeah, so so we record this on a on an it's an eight year old machine, 
Um, it's been rock solid for us. And the thing just, it kernel panicked in the mm-hmm. parlance. That's what they say. It's a kernel right. panic. Right. Uh, the thing just died. And, and I thought we'd lost what we recorded. But lo we didn't. Behold, lo and behold, I managed to recover what we recorded. Um, no, I'm not allowed to cuss on the show. Uh, and, or curse. Or that. And uh, after, my recollection of last week is after we now, thought we were last having week, this, That's a bit of new information. So this is... That we, it was we, been a week? It's been a week since yeah. we did this. So, uh, so my <laughs> recollection of last week is that I did a fair amount of cussing when I thought we had lost... Because it was good stuff, as listeners will uh, uh, agree, because well, well, then we'll get to listen. In to fact, it. by the time they've reached this point of the conversation, they will already know that it was that, good exactly, stuff. Exactly. This is yeah. my point. I think we yeah. should let them decide for themselves. <laughs> yes, and what they will decide is that it is good. Well, yeah. I, I hope so. That's my hope. I live in hope. You know that. Yeah. I, I think that the people who have reached this stage of the show probably agree with you. Yeah. It, this is, we get total selection bias thing, right? Right, right. This is why it's only at the end of the show that we should ask people to go to iTunes and rate the show. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and to send in any complaints uh, rather than go to iTunes. But anyway, right. so you, I, I interrupted you mid-story, Joe. I was, uh, I was simply to say it was such a dramatic glitch that we've never experienced before. Right. That it uh, it moved me to cuss, which yeah. would suggest that it takes a lot to move me to cuss, it, which is not true. In my experience, that's but not true. <laughs> not at all true. Um, nevertheless, uh, it was a very profound glitch. We thought we lost a forty-five minute block of sound here with Tim, and it was it was. Let me tell you, it was the excellent Tim Meyer. I well, as, here, as people know, if we actually lost it, and we came back on, and we you know, if this were the beginning of the show, I would extol how this was podcast gold that was lost. I would tell, but now that it's actually recovered, mm. I feel like people have to decide for themselves. Okay. You know what I mean? Um, so anyway, we, we managed to recover. So, so we've picked up now a week later, which is why we sound a little bit different. And instead of coffee, we have another, we have adult beverages now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, the, show might, plural. That's the show might be a little looser. And I will say this too. I wish I'd been recording uh, after that glitch. So, so right where the listeners heard the sound effect, we went upstairs we continued the conversation. That's true. We did. Just, just for fun. Just for fun. I wish we'd been recording that. That was good. And then today, when we agreed to reconvene, you guys, you know, both of you came over to, to World Argument World yeah, Headquarters. Yeah, we were talking for about an hour up there. Yeah, it was good stuff. Wow. It has been about an hour, hasn't it? Yeah. We didn't record any of it. I know. Yeah. I think you need to take a page out of the Nixon White House playbook and start installing secret microphones. <laughs> that you just get all this stuff, delete most of it. Right, but preserve that which should be preserved. I mean, isn't this a sensible thing to do? I, I think that's right. I think you might want to avoid your children's rooms, uh, <laughs> probably for the, the bucking. But yeah, yeah. Hire someone named got Butterfield. <laughs> that's uh, true. And just start recording. I, I, see, I thought your suggestion would be to take a page out of the Nixon White House and insert twenty-five minutes of silence. <laughs> this, would be, this would be a merciful and kind gesture to our yeah. listeners. Right? You make a good point. Yeah. Uh, so we were talking about, I, I believe, the Brexit. And this was, you know, I listened back to the 45 minutes yeah. that, that was there. And um, and it started off, this was, this, let me tell last week, th- those were the heady days before the convening of the Republican National Convention. Yeah. We were talking about the possibility of, of President Trump and uh, General Flynn yeah. as the comic book villain. Correct. Uh, you know, so slate. it was before the Pence election, I guess. It, yeah, well, it, was, it was the day before. I, I yeah. think I even I, I think I even made a reference to Spence. I don't know. It was a South Carolina politician. I don't know if I was even thinking about Pence at that point. I don't even know. Okay. But these were the heady days before people said that 
you know, Clinton was in league with Lucifer and all kinds mm. of stuff happened at the convention. So um, right. it was a more innocent time is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't <laughs> <laughs> well, and plagiarism hasn't infected our politics. That's right. right. Yeah. <laughs> At that point. No one had ever accused anybody of plagiarism nope. before. Nope. <laughs> oh, my God. This could be both a darker episode because right. we are a, you know, we're more, I don't know, uh, uh, um, jaded. Is that the right word? Bunch at this point? Yeah, it's a loss of innocence. But let's face it, we're more socially lubricated at this point. Mm. So I don't know how this is going to go. But let's, let's, let's do another few minutes here okay. to kind of close the loop. On, on Brexit. There are these uh, interesting echoes of our own historical experience and uh, the move from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution and the fact that we don't have a, an exit clause. This is an exit clause. How does that work? Um, and I was curious and, and in fact had done some reading in the interim about how this is going to pan out in the United Kingdom and uh, how is it going to be triggered? And apparently there's a lot of questions and not very many answers. Uh, so the is Brexit really going to take place, I think, is a live question in a way that we don't really I think we should, lay down, we should lay down bets right now before we get an expert opinion from Tim. I don't want any more information from Tim before I put okay. my money on the table. Okay. My answer is no. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Okay. What do you think? Um, I, I think it is going to happen. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Tim, what's the answer? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> the, uh, At long last. <laughs> interestingly, the prime minister just said today that she's not going to trigger Article 50 this year. Um, she is in True. Berlin, and mm-hmm. she was meeting with, the, um, with Angela Merkel, and uh, they agreed that uh, Merkel appeared to accept that that was a reasonable position um, while the British sort of got their ducks in a row to figure out um, both their negotiating position and I think, Joe, what, what you, you were referring to was just, just the mechanics of how they go about um, how they go about doing it. Now, I, I don't think we mentioned this in the last um, the last session, but part of the problem in terms of how they go about doing it is that um, although 52 percent of the those who voted voted in favor of exiting from the European Union, um, a majority of parliament is on record as saying that they would like to remain within the European Union. And so there's this issue about um, although the prime minister could follow the um, referendum on her own. If it has to go to a parliamentary vote, the outcome, people think, is um, is potentially in doubt. And so there's been a, a strategy that's been opened up to try to essentially, as a constitutional matter, say that, that a parliamentary vote is, in fact, required in order to trigger Article 50. So no, we no. Remain wants that to be the conclusion. Well, Leave obviously wouldn't want that but to But don't be we the know that? I mean, it, there is no act of the, uh, of the UK without an act of parliament, is there? Ah, see, this is why you should have been doing some of the reading that I've been forwarding to you over the course of the day, because there, hmm. there are interesting issues and questions here. There's a litigation's been joined, right? So yeah. private parties have sued. Uh, they would be damaged by Brexit. They can articulate how. And so they've said uh, the prime minister sending in this notice on her own would be a use of the royal prerogative uh, and that the royal prerogative cannot be used in derogation of an act of parliament. It would be in derogation of the act of parliament, namely the one in 1972, whereby they joined the EU. Oh, boy. Um, and, and therefore, she can't send it. The royal right? prerogative, it takes, that, it, sounds, hmm? that, that sounds serious, the royal prerogative. I know. This is, uh, <laughs> sounds uh, like yeah. the, the U.S. equivalent of uh, the U.K. equivalent of the franking privilege. 
Okay. I don't know. And uh, <laughs> just, th- that means that, yeah, of course, that the, the contrary too. view has yeah. been articulated that it's perfectly permissible uh, for her to send it on her own and it doesn't require an act of parliament and uh, yakety blah. So what's going to be the answer? We don't know. Uh, but the British courts have been dragged into trying to provide an answer because the scope of the prerogative is itself a question of common law. So well, everything is a question of common law, right? I mean, that's, I would love to hear from our UK listeners about this or from Tim, who's actually right here. But, uh, right. but I've, can, been, I've been to the UK several times. Yeah, so you, can you know you, all this stuff. Can you put in the show notes a link to this, this piece from Scott Peterson at Balkanization, which I sent you a, a link to? Because I think it's that he's a UK public law expert. He kind of lays some of this out. He's got some links in there, the other things that other mm-hmm. people could read. So people are interested in this. It's also a Guardian story yesterday mm-hmm. describing the litigation. Yeah, no, I'm not going to put either of those. So please in. put all that stuff no, in show notes. Not going to do that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> of course I'm going to do that. Of course I'm going to put those in. There seem to be a couple of problems. Mm-hmm. One is what kind of acts do you want from a people to, uh, in order to enact fundamental constitutional change in terms of the nature of sovereignty? Of you know these big questions. And the other question is, what does the UK think about that? Like, why hasn't it figured it out over all these years? Or is it, it hasn't made up its mind about whether EU-based treaties are really about its own constitution? Do you know what I mean? I mean, it seems crazy to me that a bare majority in a referendum could enact a fundamental constitutional change in the, you know, in, in, in terms of sovereignty, in terms of uh, basic rules. And, and maybe what's happening here is like, that's reflective uh th- th- what's happening is reflective of this like dual understanding of what these because if it's just some other treaty like if we a referendum should we get out of the i don't know whatever the dolphin safe tuna treaty is right <laughs> i mean like maybe a referendum is okay for that right a yeah. bare this, majority one. yeah yeah but these right. are not just these, this is not just any ordinary treaty well so I mean, am, am i crazy about this is this is this just the adult beverage talking or is this is there something to this you're not crazy the european union is not the same thing as dolphin safe labeling um i but, love dolphins i mean we should right we should we should be clear, be clear I'm, about not, that. I'm not yeah, slandering no, dolphins. We, are, right, we do right. not yeah. mean to slander dolphins yeah. I'm glad I mean, you cleared that in fact up. it may be in more important way. it could be especially could if you're, be. douglas adams is from the uk exactly <laughs> <That's> <laughs> show notes the tiger's guide um but uh you know, th- we have this problem in the United States, of course, which is that for uh, many different kinds of, of international agreements, some participation by Congress is necessary, be, right. it, the, be it the Senate um, through advice and consent or some process of um, the both houses of Congress passing laws to implement um, a treaty. Mm. Um, and yet, um, essentially, our rule is that the president can just leave a treaty. Um, and the there's not a distinction that's made strictly as a legal matter, based on what the content of that treaty is. Now, there's a political difference, obviously, um, and that, that political difference is highly relevant. To now, the president can leave, mm-hmm. but the president can't erase the implementing legislation that's been passed. That's still there, right? The impl- Yeah, right. So if you have an impl- implementing legislation, the president um, obviously can't. So like the Magnuson-Stevens Act, the, the fishery, be, that, yes. that's, that's a law. The president does not have the there's, 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 there's just there's to flexibility, though, too, right? I mean, there are these executive, like, presidential right. agreements. And so it's, it's also up to the president in some way, to, in discretionary terms, about how we enter. So some treaties, that's true. And, and then there's a question about uh, um, how you negotiate a treaty to get – so this came up with the Paris Agreement where the, the, the administration – Yes, exactly. The climate change agreement where the administration needed to ensure that um, certain provisions of that agreement 
were non-binding because they would have triggered the obligation to submit the agreement to the Senate. But without those provisions being binding, the president had the authority, was going to have the authority as a domestic matter to ratify the agreement um, himself. Yeah. Um, but but once you get to the withdrawal, there's not, you know, there's nothing in the Constitution. Right? The Constitution spells out, you know, two-thirds of the Senate gives its advice and consent um, to treaties. It doesn't say anything about about withdrawal. So it's one of the really curious things we, we talked about in the last session that withdrawal clauses, denunciation clauses, are really common in treaties. And they're activated um, with some regularity. But it turns out that when these constitutions are negotiated um, and domestic constitutions are, ne- are negotiated and drafted, nobody was thinking about these um, these kinds of issues. And that includes mm-hmm. that includes in our case. Um, and, you know, the British constitution is, of course, an ongoing sort of construction project. But uh, it seems that, you know, this is their constitutional moment to try to figure out um, you know what the rules are going to be on on withdrawal politically. It of course matters that this is the EU. This is not just some some small treaty, but it is at the end of the day a treaty to which the UK has signed up and to which they have bargained for a right of exit. Is there a move to say, boy, this this bare majority referendum is a bad idea for these kinds of changes because their constitution is an ongoing, unwritten? Actually, very importantly, a person who was in the Leave camp. Before the vote took place. This is Farage, right? No. Uh, when, before the vote took place, when it looked as if the vote would be to remain and this person wanted to leave. So this person said, look, I think it's really important that we have as a principle that whatever we decide to do, we decide to do by virtue of two consecutive votes right. that come out the same way. And he created this government petition. And it's a petition process they have in England that you can, in the UK, that you can use to get Parliament to have to debate a measure or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Right. So he, of course, they vote leave. And he immediately disavows his petition. Uh, because, I thought that was Farage. But because it, he won. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then all the Remain people start signing it so that they can trigger this public perception that there needs to be a second vote. Mm-hmm. So, of course, people were thinking about it. The, the fact that the the process rules that you put in place might need to be tailored to the substance, in, including the significance of the thing about which people are voting. Yeah, there's every reason to believe people were thinking about that. It's just that they don't have a codified constitutional backdrop that that gets you part of the way through that conversation right. before you need part to start of the way. making that, stuff that's up That's the key, again. part of the way, because I think I, I take Tim's point as being that um, well, one, our, our constitution, although appearing more rigid because it's written, in fact, I think most scholars would say it's quite plastic, right? That these yep. principles are very malleable, and we've seen we've seen very dramatic changes in their interpretation without amendments. In part because over, of things it doesn't say. Like there are plenty of issues it doesn't address. Well, and, and, so it gets you part of the way into the conversation. And when it does address things like you know, Congress can regulate interstate commerce. Right. Like the meaning is very plastic, yeah. right? And can accommodate a lot of different uh, approaches to that. But, but the things about which it's clear how many votes it takes in the Senate or whether you have to vote in the Senate to approve a treaty. Right. Like it does seem to be clear about those things. Right? I would say the treaty thing is not clear at all because, you know, we do um, in the United States, the term treaty means something different as a matter of U.S. constitutional law than it does as a matter of international law. And so Great. Um, that is totally not clear <laughs> if you were to read our constitution. So if you read our constitution – And this would, is more than the, the self-executing and non-self-executing Yeah, no, totally different. So the um, – the Who thought of that, Tim? That in international like law, idea. yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great, yeah. No, <laughs> so in international law, the, the treaty, it refers to any binding um, international agreement. A lot of U.S. Uh, international lawyers or foreign relations lawyers 
we'll use the term international agreement rather than treaty because mm-hmm. um, it turns out that lots of those things that are treaties in the international context do not go to the Senate for advice and consent, like the Paris Agreement, the Climate Change Agreement. There are still treaties internationally, but they're not treaties – and I'm making air quotes here – in the um, Article 2 sense. Meaning they don't get the power of the Supremacy Clause. Uh, well, no, that's, that's a totally different question as well. Why is that a different question? Because it yeah. says treaties, right? Yeah. So, 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 um, let's just, so tell us, what is the supremacy clause, Tim? The supremacy clause says that treaties are the supreme law of the land. In well, addition to, treaties. in addition. Yes. Sorry. Yes. But we're talking about international law here, but. Right. But, but like how to balance those things is like really interesting, right? So what if Congress passes, you know, anyway. Uh, last so is right. an executive order part of the substance of the supremacy clause, right? Is it, is, it, is it law pursuant to the Constitution of the United States? Yeah, so a sole executive agreement is a treaty under international law. That is, right. it gives rise to binding international agreements. It can be done without Congress's participation. Um, so these are often things that are – they involve diplomatic relations or military things that um, we think the president has constitutional authority to address these matters and so it doesn't have to go ask Congress's permission. Right. Um, and they can have preemptive effect with respect to state law. Ah, so um, they are part of the supremacy clause. At least, although they're not, they're not treaties for purposes of Article Two Senate ratification. Exactly. Well, we exactly. should do everything that way. Sole executive agreements. <laughs> right. Yeah, that turns out not to be Congress's view. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't <laughs> say. A holdover of the royal prerogative. By the way, this is a residual. Yeah. The royal prerogative is basically a what is it? A Youngstown Category Two, right? It's the right. president's residual authority as an executive to do things to bring into effect lawful results. Yeah, you can imagine a spectrum of these things too. So suppose Congress has, a, has passed a law like the Endangered Species Act, and suppose there's no, there are international agreements to which the ESA relates, but suppose there are none. Suppose there's, you know, just, it's our policy to promote the protection of endangered species. And the president enters an agreement getting concessions from other countries to protect endangered species and then taking on additional things which are not in the original ESA, although maybe the ESA had language about how it encouraged the president to enter these things or whatever. But the president enters these agreements but then doesn't ratify them as treaties, right? That I think you know a lot of people would say is the implementation of an existing statute and therefore gains its uh, supremacy power from the fact that it isn't the implementation of a statute. Like a lot of executive actions follow from, I mean, presumably all or most follow from statutes. Well, I mean, but, but you're talking about a different category where there's no congressional authorization to engage in the is, – is does, does the law make a distinction between this, those things? This is a category that's in flux. And again, it's in flux partially because our constitution doesn't spell any of this out. Our constitution, if you yeah. just read it, would seem to say that treaties should go to the Senate for, um, for advice and consent. Um, and that has not been the practice and it's not been the practice for a very long time. It is the case now that we seem to have um, – we're starting to see a category of agreements emerge in which the president's authority is – not his constitutional authority necessarily. So it used to be that when we thought of sole executive agreements, we thought of things, again, that they were primarily diplomatic or military because the president was relying on um, kind of foreign affairs authorities, commander-in-chief authorities. Um, increasingly, what we're seeing are agreements that the president ratifies where the president doesn't ask Congress for any implementing legislation, doesn't ask the Senate for advice and mm-hmm. consent. So they look kind of like sole executive agreements. But th- what the president is doing is relying on generally applicable um, statutory authorities. The Paris Agreement, the Climate Change Agreement is going to be done in this way. Um, the Mercury Convention um, was th- was um, one of the more recent notable uh, uses of this of this kind of power. 
where um, the president says, look, I have the authority I need already to implement the obligations of this uh, of this convention under a statute under. Yeah. Under like the Clean Air Act. Exactly. Or the Clean Water Act or whatever it might be. Exactly. And there's been a little bit of pushback about that idea um, because Congress doesn't like being cut out. Um, but at the same time, there hasn't been, you know, these these statutes, as we all know, give broad discretion to the to these agencies to implement. The, but if, but the like if the original post uh, 9-11 authorization for the use of military force, the AUMF, mm-hmm. if the president had, you know, engaged in hostilities subject, you know, uh, according to that authorization and then entered a treaty with al-Qaeda leaders or something like that to end hostilities and that had a number of provisions, then this is the classic example of – Yeah. So so the classic example of this is uh, – and, and the situation that almost exactly mirrors what you just described are what are called SOFA agreements. Um, so these are status of forces agreements. So the acronym is SOFA. Um, and it sounds so relaxing but – It, it does know, sound yeah. relaxing but it turns out – couch agreements. It turns out not to be because it's about troops. Yeah. Um, and so they create a variety what – what the, originally what they were designed to do is they were designed to um, basically provide the conditions under which we would base troops in foreign countries. And the president had the authority to order troops into foreign countries, right. um, not necessarily into hostilities, but just to base them there um, pursuant to the commander-in-chief authority. Um, now, we entered into a status of forces agreement with Iraq, and that status of forces agreement was very different from all previous uh, SOFAs. Um, because our relationship with Iraq after the invasion was very different from our relationship with, for example, Japan or South Korea, other places where we based. So this is troops. the second President Bush uh, in his second term, yeah, negotiating our wind down of forces in Iraq. Is that what you're uh, this was? To? This was uh, prior to the wind down. Oh, okay. So um, this is just right out of the gate. We're, yeah, right. We we invade Iraq and we um, – So we were negotiating – is this like – is Paul Bremer this, the guy on the other end of this negotiation? So Bremer or? was gone – by the time we negotiated this agreement, this would have been um, – it would have been near the end of the Bush administration. So so maybe it would have been kind of wind down. Okay. But the point is that there was, a, there was a debate at that time because there were provisions that extended beyond the provisions that would normally be in a status of forces agreement. There was this uh, – there was a debate about whether or not it was required to go to – um, the Senate uh, for some sort of um, broader um, approval beyond the sole executive sole executive agreement, which we've moved a little bit far from from Brexit. But I think Joe, your point is that uh, we <laughs> bring have it a, home, Tim. Bring, <laughs> bring it home. We bring have it a, home. <laughs> we have a very similar issue in the United States that's related to this royal prerogative issue, which is what kind of authority does the executive have um, to terminate agreements as apart from creating agreements? Do you have to go through the same kinds of procedures to create agreements? And what we've seen in the, even in the creation of agreements is in the United States is that you've seen an increasing uh, centralization of authority in the uh, executive branch, right? The, the president does not intend to submit the Paris Agreement right. um, to the Senate because our Senate doesn't deal um in our senate doesn't do things it just says let's just leave it at that they don't do things they they have other things to do (laughs) so maybe if there's sort of a if there's like a general kind of zeitgeist or trend maybe you could imagine the british courts which like u.s courts get pulled into things right right? zivotofsky the jerusalem uh, passport case and whatnot right courts get pulled in but but if there's this sort of zeitgeist they might think well you know sure this is something the prime minister as the executive who conducts foreign relations, 
uh, that fine. This falls within that overall. It's not practical to have this be the sort of thing that Parliament has to weigh in on, especially in the context where Parliament's already said, "Let's have a referendum." But the question is, if if right. if they, right? I mean, you if, can if that's the category of executive agreement. Then can the next executive just get out of that? Like, so so if if Trump gets in. We're going to have another Trump's show. Trump's not going to be the prime minister. We're going to have another time. show about, we were, look, yeah, in, in, about Ginsburg's comments We're talking about we're, an exit yeah. f- from something where there was an act of parliament right. that entered the agreement. So that's yeah. not, it's not quite, so you're talking about a separate category of stuff. I'm talking be, about if, if, if Trump wants to get out of the Paris agreement, like mm. that would be, you know, if it doesn't take an act of the Senate to get in, then you could imagine, especially a formalist saying it shouldn't take an act of the Senate to get out. Right. Right. Now I haven't thought about that deeply. Well, it, it doesn't take an act of the Senate to get out of one. The Senate's ratified, does it? No, well, that's the, see, so, this is, so this why is, would it take an from, act? Well, it's all, all the less reason they, they weren't involved in entry and, and they're not needed an exit. Yeah, but that's just, that's just formal. I, I agree. I mean, I, I agree, you know, but welcome to law Christian. Oh my there God. For, <laughs> there are some formalities involved. What's, What's your point? What is the reason that you would – because what we want to understand is is why should the president be able to get out of an agreement that required the Senate to get in, right? Uh-huh. And then you also want to – does that have to do with stability? Does it have to do with – and and if it does, like depending on those reasons, you might also think if the president gets into an agreement, the next president shouldn't just be able to undo it immediately. There should have to be certain reasons which are maybe – policed by the Senate or something. Maybe not. Maybe exactly what you say is true, right? This is kind of a lesser, you know, greater includes the lesser kind of argument, but it might not be. It depends on what the justifications are sure. that, that would, that, that lead us to conclude that when, when the Senate's required, even if the Senate's required uh, to enter an agreement or to, to make, to ratify it, that the president can just leave. Well, and so, in, in, you know, we, we, we mentioned at some point the question about, you know, if there's been implementing legislation in the United States, the president's decision to terminate an agreement doesn't have any effect on the implementing exactly. legislation. And the same is true of Britain, right? So Britain has said that um, they don't intend they, – they obviously have um, incorporated a variety of EU standards into their, um, into their laws. Of course. Um, and they have said, right, we don't intend to just wholesale negate all of that uh, incorporation. They've gone further, haven't they, and said that they don't intend to – this is something to ask you. So the European, what is it, the Convention on Human Rights? Because I've read things saying that they don't intend to negate that. To denounce the human rights. Yeah, rights. exactly. But but I imagine not all of that is implemented in domestic legislation in England. So is this a matter of like politicking or is there actually a domestic implementation of the whole thing? Um, that's a good question. And I guess I don't really know how they have implemented their human rights obligations. Am I wrong to think that that's Im- Important. An important issue. Yeah. No, no, no. It, it is an important issue. Um, Patrick Stewart, I think, had uh, the – have you guys seen the Patrick Stewart um, take off on Monty Python? Um, what is the European uh, – I, I have not seen rights? this. Oh, well, this would be a good thing to link at the end of your uh, – I have not yeah. seen it. Uh, hopefully he uses at some point the word engage. Uh, sadly, totally I don't, does he do I don't think I, or a face palm. He's, you know, he's, he's playing the British prime minister that is trying to unengage, uh, oh, uh yeah. from the uh, European court. I think you're thinking of disengage. disengage. <laughs> <laughs> that might be what I was thinking. That might be. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 look, I have to uh, play We don't the, speak the Queen's English here. Right? I know, I know. Uh, that we was, threw uh, these people off. I was channeling I, Joe. I would say we I was channeling Joe there. Thank you. We had our own Brexit a little while ago, Christian. I don't know if you heard it. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I think we celebrated it on July 4th, I think we in did. fact, just I a think few we weeks did. ago. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but anyway, you yeah, were saying. Yeah. So, so, you know, so 
there's a sense in which there's no requirement um, that they change any of their domestic laws um, as a function of exiting the, the uh, Treaty on European Union. And, you know, we started to touch on this last time, but there's a variety of countries that are in Europe, in the, on the continent of Europe, that are not actually uh, members of the EU. And yet, obviously, their economic livelihood hinges on being able to access the uh, common market. And so, you know, these Switzerland and Norway are the two that people regularly cite. This is also true of Iceland, um, although Iceland is obviously not actually on the continent. But it's awesome. But is apparently quite beautiful. It's, yeah. a, it's amazing. Yeah. You've got uh, you've got your Seeger Rose, the band. Mm-hmm. You got your uh, Bjork, That's and you've right. got and you've got your Icelandic football team. Mm-hmm. They um, really did put on quite a show. And you've got your volcanoes. Yeah. You've got your glaciers. Yeah, yeah. Like if we have Icelandic listeners and you're willing to put me up, I, look, <laughs> I don't you think we should do some blags on this show? Sure. Uh, and there are there's a there's a lot of family tree awareness <laughs> in Iceland. They're very they're really good at charting the sort That's of true. family right. trees and. Um, yeah, because there are only a few hundred thousand people in Iceland. Yeah, but yeah. so these are countries which have not entered. Now, have they entered the common market, the thing that happened in the 60s, 70s, or they, but not entered the thing that happened in the 90s, which was, I guess, Maastricht, and then is uh, yeah. So one, so when the initial uh, Treaty of Rome was signed in 57, Britain basically got going uh, what was essentially a parallel organization called the uh, European Free Trade. There's an A, which I believe it stands for Association. Um, this is like a Hall of Villains, Hall of Justice situation. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it is. It's like it's like Marvel. It's more like Marvel and DC. Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. two sets of heroes. Star Trek, Star Wars. We'll let listeners decide which one is better, yeah. right? The Marvel or the DC. Um, right. And the idea was to have a little bit, um, a little bit less integration. Um, and so it was. It was the UK. It was Switzerland. Um, it was Norway, Austria, and, and Iceland, and then um, a couple of the other uh, Scandinavian countries. Over time, most of those countries, like the UK, joined uh, the EU. And what happened was um, in, I want to say it was 1992, there was an agreement that was reached between, essentially between the EU and between this other organization that allowed, that created um, something called the EEA, which is the European Economic Area. And that's, that is essentially an expansion of the common market. And anybody I could see. join that that was a member of either the EU oh. or this other organization. Why does it have to be so complicated? It's very complicated. Huh? It's, it's even more com- <laughs> it's even more complicated because um so that's how Norway when people when the when the British talk about the Norway model, that's the Norway model. So the Norway model is they're members of the EFTA, um they're party to the EEA, which is the European Economic but not the EU. But not the EU. But isn't this because like the Norway model is let's have lots and lots of oil. And then, right? It's also the Scots and then, model. And then what follows from this? That that we don't will follow. What do you think follows from it? We don't want to be part of your. We don't we, want to get bound into all of your stuff because we have a natural. Because we have an export that, which is extremely valuable, which is going to keep going, and you know, and, own, and sort of has its own rules, internal logic, and such. And so right, we don't like, want to get wrapped up in your junk. We have a tremendous number of poker chips. If we want to keep an analogy going here, but is that? But but Swiss, that and Swiss, are all these sui generis like Iceland is not Norway and Switzerland is not Norway and those are good points you make. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> so uh, I am so <laughs> I, I'm going to take that snippet. We're just going to that's going to be our. No, no. What's interesting though is that Iceland and Switzerland do end in the same syllable. Well, that's true, right? And so that's there's true. a sense in which the Venn diagram. It's like you've got your Switzer right. and your ice, and in the middle is your land. Is your land? No, that's true. That's true. I mean, I think the the generalizable trend here is, or, or what's generalizable across these 
these countries is that they've all rejected the opportunity to to seek EU uh, membership. So um, in referenda, Norway has repeatedly, uh, I think twice, uh, rejected um, going forward with an And are these up or down simple majority referenda? Do you know? I think I think they are just up or down majority referenda. But uh, my memory is they're referenda like the EU uh, – excuse me, like, like the, UK the UK referenda that, you know, they're – what the what would be required to go forward is is not is not necessarily well specified. Now that Switzerland has actually gotten itself in a little bit of trouble because in in 2014, of course, one of the really hot issues in Brexit was immigration. Mm. Um, and in 2014, Switzerland um, approved a referendum that would have put quotas on um, foreign, uh, essentially on immigration through um, through Switzerland. Um, and the European Commission has said, "Whoa, this looks like this is going to." Ha- create some problems with your participation in the common market. Um, they haven't actually implemented those quotas yet. Um, I believe they have three years um, from the time the referendum passed under the terms of that referendum to, to actually um, implement and so it. this depends on the constitutional law of Switzerland as to like right. what the authority of the referendum is. Right. right? And, and we, in England, the authority is like maybe nil, right? We don't. Yeah, exactly. The The, the Brexit vote was was from a le- purely legal perspective, purely uh, advisory. And um, in Switzerland, um, my understanding is that this was not advisory, that it mm-hmm. actually had this kind of direct democracy component. What's interesting about that is that you're seeing um, rejection of the European project from these countries that have their economic fates really closely tied to um, the European market, but are unwilling to go in for the political connection. So um, Switzerland applied for EU membership initially, uh, in I, th- I think in 1992, two or three, pushed pause pretty shortly thereafter and then withdrew its application earlier this year. Iceland applied after the financial crisis and then pushed pause on its it application. like 2009? 2000. Yeah, they applied. I think it was in 2009 and they pushed pause in, I want to say it was 2013 on that application process. So you're seeing that a lot of these countries that um, have a really strong economic interest in being in the EU really are uncomfortable at the popular level with uh, the European project in the same way that the, the British turn out to be. Now, the British situation is different because – They did join. They did join and there are really strong political incentives for those that are in the EU to uh, punish them right. on their exit as a signal, not, not because it's about Britain but become, because it becomes about these parties in the Netherlands or elsewhere. That and not only leave. joined but joined 45 years ago. I right. mean, jo- like there's a very long course of practice – where they're fully members, then monetary union comes. Now there's some sort of disconnect a little bit, maybe built in the hesitation of, of continuing membership. But, but that's a very long course of conduct that makes them quite different from, well, we didn't want to join then. We still don't want to join. Right. Can we get in on some of the economic stuff without, without getting into any of the regulatory or political stuff? It's also worth yeah. noting that the you know Norway doesn't get out of the regulatory stuff. I mean, they end up having to accept. Fair point. You know, there, there's a few things that are important, so they don't have to, for example, accept disciplines on fisheries, right? And fishing is an important. Um, it's not just oil, Christian. There's also fish. <laughs> right, right. Iceland and Norway—that's an important thing yeah. to them, and so it, it partially that explains why they have this, um, why they have this arrangement. Fishing is as a percentage of the economy, and both, and, and as a sort of a cultural touchstone, I think is less important to the UK. Um, so they're kind of a less natural fit with that. Um, one one of the things we were talking system. about before we hit record was 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 why you know why do they hit the play button on joining and why do they hit the pause button and then why do they hit, why do they hit the stop button? You know, in the United States, it's uh, maybe you could say tell a story about cotton and um, kind of the increase in demand for slavery in the South and 
increasing discomfort with that in other parts of the United States. And, and my contention was, and we argued about this, like, do you need a do you need a crisis in order to convince a populace to the extent you're relying on a populace to agree? Do you need something approaching a crisis to get them to agree to waive sovereignty? And my theory was against integration and any kind of waiver of any form of sovereignty will always be this really, you know, it, it not, maybe not a trump card, but a high value card, just the general like narrative about sovereignty and freedom, blah, 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 blah. And that will always be extremely weighty, you know, even if the rationality of integration is, is um, clearly the winning rationality. And, and maybe that's true of secession as well. Mm. Yeah, self-determination, you could put on both, t- I mean, secession But secession seems the more se- powerful interest, right? Because secession always tells a localist, tribalist, sovereign story plus crisis, right? So if you just think of the dynamics of the evolution of an integrated people who have tribal identities or local identities, secession is always going to be the more powerful force, isn't it? It seems like you don't need very much crisis to encourage secession because you have that built-in advantage of localism and tribalism. And anytime there's any kind of negative... You need to sell it politically. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm... The whole point of this is to talk about the role of kind of referendum and, you know, a, a vision of popular sovereignty as a determinant of whether you're going to integrate or disintegrate. But uh, So how many data points do we really have if what we're talking about is... Well, let me just the, stop you there because we're lawyers and we need one or two. That's all. Okay. <laughs> I would think we have maybe one. Um, uh, just because I'm not sure the U.S. is a great data point here because yeah. what ultimately resolves this question – now, there's the – you know, we move from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution without a civil war. But um, as we were saying during mm-hmm. this earlier conversation, yeah. what really consolidates that is um, is the civil war. And then the Great Depression. And then the Great Depression later. But, but you ultimately have um, a conquest by the north of the south. And lots of times the what leads to integration, you know, just speaking as a historical matter, is some form of military threat or military intervention. Um, and what's notable about what the EU is going through now is that, that that's absent, right? That, that's exactly my point. Like, is, it, yeah. is, this a, is this a sustainable project without that? If, if continued integration is going to be maintained on popular grounds, and secession is built into like in the U.S. Constitution is not there. You could at least Look, argue about its legality. You're overplaying this built-in thing, right? So the the the, the Scots uh, exit vote fails, right? Scucks it. What do we call that? You mean um, from the U.K.? Correct. The Quebecois try again and again about leaving Canada. That doesn't work. Right? They try repeatedly. It doesn't work. So it it's just not the case that any time a particular culturally coherent group of people want to secede it it uh, it it goes ahead even as a matter of popular vote it's, it's just not true i guess i'm saying that european, so you're overselling I, this built-in argument no i i, I it seems I, i'm talking me. about like the the forces and this is you know this is more a sociological thing uh but the forces that would point toward the integration of disparate ethnic groups and the forces that point toward disintegration of disparate ethnic groups. There seems to be a built-in disadvantage of integration and a built-in advantage of disintegration. Absent crisis. And the European project, as Tim said, is, is in a way, I don't know if it's sui generis in the long run of history or not. You know, and, and part of it is, you know, you get to follow the Berlin Wall and you have a sense of like a shared ethnic culture of Europeanism. Right. And maybe that's what they're trying to take advantage of, that we really are all one people uh, and, and things like the, uh, the uh, is it Shenzhen zone? 
Mm-hmm. Like that, that isn't, you know, that, that's an everyday advantage that normal people experience, which makes them feel like one people. Yeah. I vacation in Spain. It's what I, you know, I attend university. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it's the way that, that in the United States, it's, as I said before, it's unthinkable that North Dakota would decide to enter hostilities against South Dakota. Right. It's just unthinkable now. It, it wasn't. Right. If I but, couldn't go to North Dakota, what would I do? <laughs> <laughs> we we can pick on North Dakota on this show because for the longest time they didn't yeah. download a single episode. I, I, oh I, have, my God. I have 49 answers to that question. <laughs> um, but but now but, but now they are but now they are downloading regularly from the great state of North Dakota and I Excellent. love them. Yeah. Excellent. I love them. History would suggest yeah. that <laughs> Here we go. Uh, the No one has ever made an overgeneralization starting with Let's just let's just conclude that the last few minutes of the show are going to be just <laughs> wild rapid, speculation. Wild the the um, it depends, of course, on what you mean by crisis. But and, and I'm I'm only enough of an historian to know that these sound like counterexamples. Perhaps they're not. Perhaps they reinforce entirely your thesis. However, if you look at at the fact that Germany gets forged out of a bunch of separate things, right? Italy gets forged out of a bunch of separate things. France gets forged out of a bunch of different things. These are earlier periods where the UK, hmm? the, UK. the UK is forged of different things so they were those all down to crisis maybe you know maybe there were military imperatives i think everyone who studied the history of the uk knows that the 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 united kingdom was built on on peaceable rational discussion about (laughs) shared interests (laughs) um so i just think it's i i think your thesis of you know it there there's sort of an entropy built in in terms of a national or tribal identity that that is sort of always a little bit stronger. And so it takes some other thing to counterbalance it and bring people together in a, in a higher level of generality so we can forge an identity above those groups. Right. Um, I just, uh, it doesn't sound right to me. I, yeah, my claim is it takes, it takes education. It takes Twitter. It takes travel. It takes the forging of a shared culture. Um, to and be- is crisis the only thing that can do that? Well, except my, my sociological theory, born of a couple of beers, <laughs> is that is that yeah. it takes a crisis to forge the political integration and the uh, and the forging of a new sovereign identity of disparate ethnic groups who conceive themselves as different as disparate ethnic groups. Uh, if if you're in the UK and you feel like you are of a different ethnicity than people outside of the UK, right? then you're going to be more inclined to to be in favor of Brexit, to oppose integration. If, however, you have grown up with a a sense of European identity and a sense that you can go to college anywhere in Europe and that you can, uh, and and that your classmates are, you know, Europeans and maybe not necessarily just from England or from Scotland, then I think you're going to have a different outlook on that. And so the pessimistic view is that the survival of the human race depends on further integration in the long run as technological capacities get, you know, more and more dangerous and, and more and more available. But the hopeful story is that we can forge a common ethnic identity over time. But I, I guess, you know, and this maybe brings us back to, to some of the larger themes here, which is that, you know, I don't think it takes crisis to create this kind of, in this context, a pan-European identity. I mean, what 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 we've heard in the wake of of Brexit, I think, is that you know, for young people, this basically already exists, right? right. Because this is this is the world they have grown up. The shared in. ethnic identity. Yeah, right? this this idea that we are Europeans and we're also British or we're also French. Yeah. Um, but we're, but we're in in a lot of the ways that um, 
you know, Americans might have a regional identity and also think of themselves as being American. Um, the problem is that there is right. There's there's clear um, class implications to that um, and generational implications to that, and and that's true of, of this um, this sort of globalization phenomenon in the EU. And obviously, you know, we're, we're here during the Republican uh, National Convention, right? <laughs> this is true in the United States as well. That um, you just don't have um, globalization creating either the economic effects or these kind of cultural effects that you're describing. Uh, in, in any, any kind of uniform um, uniform fashion, you know, for, people can't afford to travel. Yeah, because people can't afford to travel. Right. It's not like all of the British are vacationing in Mallorca um, all the time or attending university, you know, in in the Netherlands or any of these kinds of things. Right. It's it's a select group of um, the British population that's able to take advantage of those kinds of um, opportunities. And that in turn is um, being advantaged by the kind of economic um, free flow of goods and services and so forth. Or can envision the themselves as participating in it. Even right. if they're not participating now, do they view that as something that's part of their future? Right. And so the net benefit, the uh, crisis may make it, yeah, I was making this point upstairs, but crisis might make it easier for a norm entrepreneur or a political entrepreneur exactly. to get people to see exactly. that they can gain from this, right? But I don't think that's the only time when a, a political entrepreneur or a norm entrepreneur can get people to see, hey, there's a bigger upside here than a downside. If we go in this direction that is that forges another identity that crosses these groups. So again, I don't know enough about history to know, like, so what's Bismarck's raw material? What's Garibaldi's raw material? I don't know, right? An historian could tell us. But my sense is, it's it, it's not limited to crisis. There are other things out of which you can forge the perception in the populace that there's a net benefit in this opportunity for them if they follow you because you've got this plan and this project, right? Um, but that's, that's my sense. It's also true that, you know, to the extent we're comparing this to German unification or Italian unification, right, that it's more important now that sort of the base of people that have to approve is broader than it than it has ever been in the past Indeed. as a result of – um, of democracy, which creates this imperative if the integration project is going to go forward to actually share some of the economic and cultural <laughs> absolutely um, cultural gains in a way that Bismarck probably didn't feel compelled um, to do. You know, it, it, it was enough that the elites um, and and those yeah. who were going to order the troops. Although I bet at the time he was thinking to himself, "God, this is getting shared more broadly than ever before." Well, that's probably right, right? Uh, right. And we would now look at it and say, yeah, so paltry with the sharing. And we, right. you know, you got to get bigger and bigger because right? each thing creates its new own, it, its own new baseline right. that people are using to compare. Well, gosh, I'm not, I'm not better off. That doesn't, I don't participate in that. That doesn't speak to my situation. Um, and we're not, I don't, this is sort of the Bernie Sanders critique, I think, of the globalization stuff is it's not shared enough yeah. uh, for people to feel like, oh, that speaks to me. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have to feel the burn to come to that conclusion though, do you? No, um, agreed, but but I think it is part of what he was trying to articulate as a message. Yeah. Uh, that there are that that you need to see who's getting the upside of this, you know, in this example, sort of lower and lower trade barriers, more and more free flow of goods and employment and money, uh, you know, who's reaping the reward of that? Yeah, and that but, that need not be a critique of integration. It, it's a critique of integration. Uh, it's a critique of the domestic policies that attend integration. Yeah, and that whereas, follow up whereas, on that. So, so Trump's critique of integration is just a bare critique of integration because of ethnicity, <laughs> right. right? I mean, it's, yeah. those are very different things. 
Yeah, when you're when you're xenophobic, uh, integration is its own evil. It's its own bad argument or bad outcome. Right. When you're a hammer, everything looks like a skull waiting to be crushed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> this is far afield, isn't it? Where do we want to end no, up with this? No, it's right in the heart. I mean, Tim, what, what what have we not gotten out that we should be talking about? I mean, I think that the, you know, where we are right now is that this is a um, the Brexit vote, as important it is, as it is for the EU, you know, we're, of course, sitting here in... Um, uh, the land of milk and honey in the uh, in the United States, <laughs> um, and you know the the globalization project is um, at a uh, what I would describe as a crisis moment, not a military crisis moment, mm-hmm. but it is at a moment where we have to figure out we as a sort of collective global polity have to figure out you know what this project is going to look like going forward, and and we don't really have a good roadmap for it mm-hmm. um, because. It, you know, at least in the United States, what we're getting from um, leadership is on the one hand, you're getting um, the Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump um, kind of attack on globalization. And on the other hand, you're getting what is basically a wholehearted embrace of globalization as it has existed up to this. Right. You know, from from essentially the end of the Cold War up until this. Um, With some bromides for side deals and things like right, that, right? Right, Yeah. So we, we, we've we got labor provisions that, that you know, very gradually are getting stronger environmental provisions in these in these trade agreements. Um, there has been definitely um, a movement to increase uh, what sometimes referred to as regulatory autonomy for for nations within the context of international economic agreements. But nothing um, that deals like full throat in a full throated way with like the Piketty critique of exactly, yeah, exactly yeah. with the idea that globalization. A lot of that is because um, those things are not really about international um, governance; they're really about national governance. Um, but but the problem is like they're exacerbated by global exactly. globalization, right? And exactly, um, and so and they're tied together. Exactly. So you you run into this um, problem where you know international the tools of international governance can't really fix the the attack on international governance and mm. in, and integration and we haven't yet seen a leader that's really articulated a vision for how we're going to um solve that uh solve that problem we haven't seen it in the united states i don't think we've really seen it um we've really seen it in europe either and so brexit is probably the you know the place where we're really going to get to see uh, and the negotiations over the brexit or where we're really going to get to see whether or not there is a vision for how this um, how this globalization can work that's going to address um, some of these concerns of the globalization um, critics, because it's the first time that the globalization critics in a really, you know, in, a, in one of the world's major economies have hit back and said, look, th- enough is enough. Um, we right. haven't participated. And um, so we're not going to go forward with this. But project. it's the nativist crowd and not the Battle of Seattle crowd. I, I know what you mean. Um, and Because and, those are two different fixes for globalization. The yeah, nativist fix for globalization right. is build the wall. The Battle of Seattle fix, they might think is build the wall, but it might also be dramatic like international wealth taxation or other kinds of redistributive programs, which would not right. satisfy the nativists in any way. Right. I mean, this you could call this the Trump versus Sanders. Right? Exactly. Which is that the, diagnose, yeah. the, the problem is essentially the same, but the solutions are very, very different. The question I think is going to be is whether or not we see any sort of rallying around um, a common solution to these kinds of issues, right? Economic inequality, the Piketty problem, as you call it, is or, or um, if the the youth directed message it becomes sufficiently compelling that young people actually vote in in greater numbers. 
That is the hope of every progressive movement everywhere is that <laughs> young people will <laughs> but vote it's, it's, but it's, since it's, the dawn it's, of it's time. A different <laughs> way, it's a different way of approaching it than, you know, you need to find a synthesis that, that cobbles together groups. It's actually, no, one of these groups actually is more numerous, right? The, the, yeah. the older people, like, you know, tomorrow there will be fewer of them in a certain mathematical way that isn't true of the, the younger group. So if you just get the younger people to more energetically embrace their future and register it in this particular also, way, yeah. um, then X. But the problem yeah. with that is like the, the, the critique is of what we would call in the United States liberals and elsewhere, they wouldn't use that term to describe this, but it's the incompetence at sharing the, of the message <laughs> of like, here are the benefits of European integration, right? Like all the benefits are being able to travel without a passport, being able to uh, go to university anywhere, being able to enter Liberals have not been able to articulate the gains of these things or to deal with the downsides. I also think it's important just to reiterate that those are not gains that are shared by everybody. I mean, yeah, it is really right. important to remember that, you know, not everybody even necessarily has a passport um, to be able to take advantage of those. Kinds well, then you of, really like, advantage if you don't, don't need one. Like <laughs> you really advantage if you don't need one. And, and you know, Europe is, you know, it's it's a. It, it's a small continent relative to the United States, right? I mean, it's, you know, we're looking at a place which is roughly the size of the United States, actually a little bit smaller, I think, depending on how you define what Europe is. Right. And, you know, think of people who are not of great means in the United States who nonetheless take road trips across state lines, right? Yeah, it happens and all the time. It happens all the time. And, yeah. it, and it is what can bring joy to lives which are otherwise kind of difficult, being able to go to the beach in another state or something like that. Like, these are significant gains of integration in the United States that we now take for granted. But it's only because we take them for granted that we don't think about them, right? Which is, I guess, the definition of taking something for granted. It probably <laughs> means that we should end. Right. <laughs> probably. <laughs> well, so before we end, though, unless there's something else you wanted to say, is Brexit going to happen? Joe and I went on the record. I think you should have to go on the record, Tim. My So if I were making a prediction, I would say 60-40, it's not going to happen. Um, and I think what will, my guess is that that um, they will go through the the negotiations to figure out what it would look like. So it will get triggered. Um, no, it will not get triggered. That's his. So I actually think that what's going to happen. Obviously, once Britain triggers, because haven't they 50, said? But, but Europe has said we're not going to negotiate with you until you trigger Article. 50. They've said that. They have Lots said, of that, said a lot of things. There's a question about whether that's really credible. Um, okay. Because Britain, ha you know, international negotiations, the ability to inflict um, pain on others, yeah. is a huge amount of uh, pa bargaining power. And yeah. so right now, I really relate to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so right now, Britain's ability to inflict uncertainty um, gives them a lot of bargaining power. And what we heard today was that uh, Merkel was actually willing to tolerate, at least in in the interim, she was pushing for a timeline, but she was willing to tolerate um, a delay that's going to be at least six months long. Yeah, because that's right. her leverage is is hoisting them by their own petard. Right. Right. You have to leave right now. But you know the the European treaties that which we'll link to in the in the, in the show notes have been amended many, many times, right? Yep. And so what could happen is there will be a new kind of amendment, which will oh. now be cast as a response to Brexit. And then the UK leaders can bring this back to yeah, their people you've got and to get say, everyone to, you've got to get every country to agree to that. They thing, already right? do that. They, this has happened many, like the, the, the Lisbon treaty, right? Was an update of the, what is it? 93, the Maastricht. The Maastricht treaty? treaty is 93. Then there's, there's Amsterdam, Nice, Lisbon. Um, so there've been a series of it's these It's a veritable kinds of tour of the treaties. continent. <laughs> yeah, right. They, 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 they vacation in but like trees. I'm sorry. I interrupted prices. you midstream though. You, you, you were saying they're, they're going to talk about, uh, they're going to negotiate. 
my my basic prediction is the longer it drags out, the less likely it is that Britain will actually leave. Um, and so I take today's sign when the, with with the Germans saying, "Look, we're not going to rush you overly much right now." To be that we're talking, we're already shoving out at least six months. Yep. Um, the delivery of this notice. I don't think ultimately it's credible that there will be no discussions at all in uh, the interim. Okay. Um, so I think at some point you get to a place where it's the contours of that deal start to take shape. Inevitably, whether it's in the form of a referendum or whether it's in the form of a measure that has to be approved by parliament. I mean, we don't know exactly what that would look like. But at some point, somebody has to approve um, triggering that uh, triggering that mechanism, be it the prime minister or parliament. Um, right. I think that they will have some idea of what things are going to look like um, before they won't they won't know all the details. But um, I think they will probably get to a place where they have some idea what it's going to look like beforehand, and that'll give them a basis for going back to to rethink um, this uh, this event. So that, that's my guess. Will be my accept guess. or reject the X treaty, where X is London or Berlin. Like that's the next European amendment. The next European amendment, or whether there'll be another UK. Yeah, because that, that's a way this could unfold, right? Is that that in the context of negotiations, they basically go to the next round of European constitutionalism, right? Which is constantly changing, and you know, so it's an update. Is Lisbon the last one? Lisbon is the last one. Yeah, so this is be an update to Lisbon, where they change a few provisions, and 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 maybe they do it in London. I don't know Mm-mm. if London is stronger than Berlin, Edinburgh. Mm. Got to fold in Scots here. That's right. Belfast. Nicholas Sturgeon is going to be putting some stick. The about. Belfast Treaty would be amazing, but um, I don't even know what that means, really. I mean, it's complicated. Uh, but but that that could be the referendum: accept or reject the Edinburgh Treaty within the UK. That within the, the UK, right? That, that would be a way of kind of yeah, and, right. and then everybody could claim victory, and right. then. You know, whenever I think of politicians nowadays, whenever I think of politicians um, retreating from things that they've said, you know, I think of Paul Ryan, who Mm. absolutely was not going to be the uh, Speaker of the House right up until the moment (laughs) where he was going to be the Speaker of the House. (laughs) You know, so so when the British say now, you know, Brexit means Brexit and and these sorts of things, I I don't follow British politics that closely. Nor do I. But based on my experience with American politics, that strikes me as not meaning anything one way or the other. That that there's this process that's going to unfold. Um, the British government is clearly playing for time. Um, and the longer it goes on, right? Remember, Britain remains a member of the EU yep. up until a point where either they trigger Article 50 and agree to leave or two years after they trigger Article 50. The British are in the dri- The British government is in the driver's seat um, in some fashion and they don't seem in a rush. So um, that suggests to me that it's more likely that, that this doesn't end and up. You're saying triggered. the Europeans don't, the other members do not have means to sort of hustle them out faster uh, on the, on the ground that, well, whatever their, whatever their interests might be, it, it, if they, if they think they're being harmed by British delay, they have no means at their no, disposal. There's no legal hook. I mean, until they trigger Article 50. You can't force 50. them out. There's no legal means, right? There are, there are obviously lots of political or diplomatic kinds of pressure right. that, that they could bring. And, there's and no legal the, mechanism. It's like the person the in the party who's like, boy, this party's lame. I'm going to leave this party, but they stay there. You know, it's, it's kind of a jerk move. And you kind of, either the party might be better if they left, but you don't, you know, you could ask them to leave, I guess. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. Isn't that the kind of thing we're talking about? I guess. I don't know. I'm trying. I'm, to, I'm always the one who says this party's really great. I'm out of here. Well, you go. You know, you don't say that. You just go. Well, no, that's what I do. Right. Me you, personally. If the, in fact, you, you know would, you would never me. Brexit because you have to trigger Article Fifty. 
You wouldn't want people to right, know you're leaving. Right, just ghost out of there. <laughs> right. All of a sudden, there's just borders up. And, yeah. Know, yeah. Where, where did Joe go? <laughs> That's, he, I'm he telling you, this, this is going to be the rhetoric. They're going to negotiate a new thing, and then they're going to say, we have exited the Lisbon Treaty, and now we have entered a treaty which is now in the interest of the UK. Uh, you know, well, so, 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 so it can't, it can't happen quite like that because what the Lisbon treaty is, is it's an amending treaty. Yeah. Um, so it's just, a, so there are the, the, these two treaties, the treaty on European union and the treaty of the functioning treaty on the functioning of the European union that have just been amended by these agreements. So what you're proposing is essentially that there'd be another amending treaty. No. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it would be the follow on to Lisbon, uh, which would change various provisions. Who knows what? Maybe it doesn't even matter what it changes because we're talking about a referendum here. Yeah. And then you go back to the referendum and say, uh, we have the opportunity now to accept the new whatever Edinburgh Treaty, right? And the rhetoric is we're all behind this because this allows us to exit from the former regime. And I use exit here in the rhetorical political sense right. of a referendum, right? Not in any legal sense. They wouldn't exit anything. They wouldn't right. actually exit the EU. But they'd be able to say we've gotten rid of – we are no longer under the thumb of Europe in quite the same way. And right. maybe they throw some – throw them some bones in terms of being able to – You know, you call it Stexit because you get to stay and exit. Ooh. I think it's time for um, adult beverage number three. Uh, yeah. The real problem is that your fridge is too far away from your microphone. <laughs> <laughs> That's what keeps the recording shorter. Right. Because we have to get up and – Yep, Studio 2.0 will feature built-in taps and all. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it up to our listeners as to whether that makes for better uh, podcasting right. or not. I suspect. What do you think? We need beer drones. <laughs> Just That's, deliver the beer. Oh, I, you you held your hands up to your head like you were like a like a stadium pal. <laughs> do you ever hear? No. Do you ever hear? Uh, do you ever hear? Um, uh, what's his name? Um, David Sedaris's piece on the stadium pal. No. This is the hat you wear where you put two beers oh, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. they have the little tubes that come down into your mouth and you're able to, to drink without the fuss and, yeah. and you know, delay of lifting your hand to your no. face. You don't want to get carpal tunnel. <laughs> no. It's amazing that they came up with a name for that object that conveys nothing of the horror of that object. That's amazing. That's, I think it's... What a marketing triumph. It says, if you, you know, if you're in a stadium, this is going to be your best friend. <laughs> <laughs> especially if your arms are tired yeah and you can have two beers at once so your hands are free to do other things like punch people i guess I don't know mm, great yeah all right well uh i i you know my one disappointment here is that my vast knowledge of the english premier league or the british premier league really was not was not helpful really wasn't yeah. not deployed although although relevant i mean although could... relevant right have you heard People like this swayed some voters the concern about whether this would hurt their ability to buy Transfers. Europe's most elite players. Yeah. 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 Wow. I mean, I think what we fail to work in is um, Wales' stunning success. You mentioned yeah. Iceland's, but Wales' stunning success yeah. um, in the Euro. More successful than Iceland, even. Yeah. And more successful than. Oh, England. certainly. Yeah. England. Yeah. 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 Um, and so when we think about sort of devolution, right, the, the England has already – or the UK has already accepted a high level of soccer or football related. Which is crazy because they would do a lot better if they were integrated. If they were integrated, they would do a lot better, right? And so we've already seen this kind of voting against interest hmm. in the football world. Wow. 